0: we are. We are recording Voice of Design. Yes. And we have Nathan with us. Hello. Yes. And of I, the League
1: of Nathans.
2: I have a Topo Chico.
1: Uh, you you win for having a beverage. All right. Yes. And a
2: non-U.S. beverage at that.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Voice of Design. I'm Erica Hall.
0: Hi, and I'm Mike Montero, and I'm so glad to be here with you today. <laughs>
1: And we have a very uh, special guest and longtime friend of mule, Mr. Nathan Shedroff. Hello, Nathan.
2: I feel like I should neigh or something. What sound does a mule make? It mostly complains. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're wrong. Okay. You're you're wrong. wrong.
1: You're Um, wrong. wrong.
2: I'm not good at that. So I'll just say
1: hi. They bray. I think mules bray or donkeys bray. Horses neigh. So mules do whatever's in between a bray and a neigh. We should find this out. Later. Later.
0: See, I immediately came up with an answer to that, and then I thought, I, that's not the sort of thing I want to say it's on the family air.
1: family radio program.
0: Uh, yeah, but what family? I mean, the Mansons <laughs> were a family, technically.
2: The Adams are a family. Oh, they're yeah. my favorite family. Are yeah. you pro or con the new remake? There's what? a
1: remake? What? What? Oh, yeah,
2: animated it's either oh, animated. Oh, animated,
1: but like 3D, like is it the Lion yeah, like King animated? N- not or? photorealistic. The Lion King is
0: not anim- animated. It's a live action Lion King. What do
1: you mean? Those aren't live animals,
2: are they? Well, they're not fucking dead animals. No, they're all CG. Yeah,
1: they're CG. That the to me one. is animated. That isn't- well, How about
2: that cats, huh? Cats, you know uh, what?
1: Judy Dench is buying a lot of her drug of choice from that movie.
0: I'm, You know, we're all going to be wrong on Cats.
2: Mark my words. We're all going to be wrong on Cats. Meaning it's going to be incredibly successful or it's not going to be
0: successful at all? It's going to be an amazing movie. It's going to be an amazing
1: ride. Wow. All I know is I think that happened. I was in the woods up a mountain for five days, completely and joyfully cut off from the internet. And I'm coming down from the mountain. No, you weren't
0: because you texted me while you were up there.
1: During that brief, that was a yeah. At I the know because I was trying to hype. do
0: something, and all of a sudden you were texting me.
1: Oh, sorry for Helping. letting you know I was alive. Well, wow. I, I was playing pinball. Oh, yeah. Okay.
2: So the first thing that you encountered on the internet after five days was that trailer.
1: Was was everybody? I'm like, oh, what are people talking about on Twitter today? And it was the Cats trailer, which at this point I'm I'm really nostalgic for the day everybody was talking about the cat that was a beautiful those simpler times simpler times when everyone was talking about the cats trailer um i uh i loved cats when i was a child i had the soundtrack but i was too poor to actually go see the show so i just memorized the soundtrack to cats
2: wow why
1: because i was a kid and it's joyful and it's t.s elliott and it's cats poetry
2: who doesn't like cats (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's people, it's sexy, meow. sexy unitard, anthropomorphic cats. Yeah. Why, why don't you like cats? You like plenty of comic things. I'm like,
0: allergic to cats.
1: These are synthetic cats. Are they though? They, they don't use real cat Erica, hair. you
0: can't just say everything you don't like is, isn't real.
2: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yes, <that's... laughs>
1: I can. I was a philosophy major. That could, With
2: things like that, she could that. be
1: president. Yeah. <sighs> Nathan, President of CATS, Nathan. Thanks so much
0: for coming on our podcast today. We're so happy. <laughs> it, it's to been have
1: wonderful.
2: You. Thank you for having yeah.
1: me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we're we wanted to to sit down and chat, with Nathan, because we're you know we're very interested. In addition to CATS,
0: did you like Jupiter Ascending?
2: I I liked watching it. It was not worth watching again. It was,
0: you know, it was entertaining. I love Jupiter ascending. And I think Cats is going to be put in the same category as Jupiter ascending.
1: And what category is that? Just
0: morphically horrifying? Amazing shit shows. Oh. Just that the bigger the screen that you watch it on, the better time you'll have. Uh, yeah. I saw Jupiter ascending on the IMAX.
1: Wow. Nice.
0: It was like three hours of sitting there going, What the
1: fuck? Huh. And I don't
0: regret a minute. I, I
1: never saw this film.
0: Well,
1: it was I'll nicely designed. It. Yeah, and and Nathan, you are an expert in sci-fi design. You've written a book. I
2: have written a book. You co-wrote
1: a book Chris about and I, yeah. sci-fi interfaces.
2: That was a lot of fun. That was sort of like um, 50 years in the making.
1: <laughs> it was all books are, are like that.
2: <laughs> well, no, like my whole childhood, right? You oh, know? oh, got <laughs> like, it, got watching, it. That just that felt that long, long to write. But it actually turned out really interesting because there are... There are these interesting lessons that we learned that are sort of crowdsourced, crowd-validated lessons about interface and interaction. Not that that makes them immediately, all of them immediately applicable to commercial work, but kind of sets up a really interesting dynamic between ideas that are good for audiences versus ideas that are good for users.
0: I have a topical question.
2: Yeah. Is it about a skin condition? (laughs) Yesterday,
0: I read something that the U.S. Army is going to do away with touchscreen interfaces, and they're going back to, like, knobs and shit.
2: Did you see that? No, I did not. I'll pull it up. That's interesting.
0: Because, you know, the whole you know, sci-fi interface thing.
2: Yeah. Well, the whole sci-fi interface, I thought you were going to say that the U.S. Army was getting rid of physical interfaces and yeah. were instead going no, to, they went to the project way it, translucent screens that project in front of you, which is yeah. a really bad idea. No.
1: no, it's the Navy, and they're oh, replacing well, the touch Navy. screens with mechanical screens in its destroyers because there was a crash in 2017 between a destroyer and an oil tanker. See what happens um,
2: when you play chicken?
1: Yeah. The USS John S. McCain collided with the Alnic MC, wait, a Liberian. Wait, 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 wait wait, oil wait, tanker wait, wait.
0: It was the McCain. In
1: 2017, August 21st.
0: Oh, we're going deep state.
1: We are in deep state.
0: We are going so deep state today.
1: Um, yeah, Re- fatigue and lack of training played a role in the accident. According to the Verge talking about the report.
2: Seems like that would apply to knobs and buttons too. The design yeah. of
1: the ship's control console was a contributing factor because it was a pair of touch screens through which the crew could steer and propel the ship. And they had placed it in backup manual mode, which removed computer assisted help. Wow. So this is a thing, this is a thing you see in sci-fi where they were like, put it on manual. And they did it, but maybe accidentally. So any crew member at another station could take over steering. And then when the crew tried to regain control, it shifted from one helm to another one and back. So it's like the controls were overly complicated. This, this is
0: like ghost mode in, in Super
2: Mario Kart. Yeah, it just sort of seems like maybe it maybe it wasn't the touch screen. Maybe it was just the design of the interaction itself.
1: Yeah. Nothing,
2: nothing you just read made me think that... I mean, I thought they were going to say the touch screen cracked and was no longer visible or yeah. the glare from the windows made it unusable. Yeah, but, or fogging. Yeah, or, nothing you just yeah. read says this is a problem with touchscreens, it's like this is a problem with bad design.
1: Well, yeah, because according to the report, several crew members on the bridge at the time were not familiar with the systems they were overseeing. They were inexperienced in their roles, and many were fatigued with an average of 4.9 hours of sleep.
2: It's like doctors. Yeah, this is.
1: Yeah. These are all problems that like interfaces
2: a- can't solve. Right.
1: Yeah, so they said update the controls and documentation and in- ensure the navy personnel aren't tired when they're on the job. Yeah, the tired part really That might be a key. Yeah. I like, think, I don't know. That's All well, uh, that in the
2: training. Yeah, training meaning.
1: Yeah, so it was the I configuration of the system. I
2: think it was whoever flagged the oil tanker that is really the problem here. You know that oil
0: <laughs> is coming out of the of the of uh, those those Soldiers money paychecks.
2: Just like a waitress. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah.
1: yeah. So they said the mechanical throttles are preferred because they provide immediate and tactile feedback to the operators. The helmsman would have been alerted that there was an issue if there were mechanical controls. Yeah. So this doesn't sound totally like an interface.
2: No, I mean if you look at issue. what's going on, like look at the the Tesla Model 3, or you look at a modern cockpit in an airplane, they haven't just touchscreened everything. Yeah, There's a mix of physical and digital controls. And Mm -hmm. it turns out when you spend a lot of time researching and designing and prototyping, you can get a really good balance between what really needs to be physical and what could easily be configurably digital.
1: Yeah. I think the key is design.
2: Design. Wow. (laughs) We should look
1: into that. Yeah. And with... uh, taking human factors into consideration. Yeah. I think this is an interesting case study because what we're seeing in every situation is every industry, every industry is there's a sense that technology, if you design the technology well enough or you engineer it well enough, it will compensate for humans humaning instead of Understanding how human decision making works, and especially our physicality and our lived experience and our well, context,
2: emotionality, and our emotionality, and, you
1: our know, emotionality our and our annoying need for sleep that even pro vigil hasn't uh, eradicated.
2: You know the
0: Nazis solved that in World War Two with II. meth. Yep. Oh yeah. By inventing meth.
1: That's right. There's that book that you read that I've not read. No, no
0: meth, no invasion of
2: France. Well, I think actually the U.S government used meth as well in the, in at least World War II, if not the Korean. They didn't War. have it in World War II. Or maybe Korean War and Vietnam War. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we have used it. I think our spies oh, use it. Yeah,
0: like. I'm sure they do, but they had to get it from the Germans during, like after that World War That in the
2: II. V1 rocket, right?
0: Right. So, you know, they, they, got, they popped into Berlin, picked up a ton of meth and some, and some scientists, which who among us has not
2: gone to Berlin for just that? They have a whole duty-free shop there when you leave Berlin. Yeah, they do. Math and
1: scientists. Yeah. Yeah. If if you want a little moon trip. Uh, No, apparently, according to a... uh, There's a PBS show I've never heard of before. I've been sleeping on PBS, apparently. There's a show called Secrets of the Dead. Uh, They had an episode entitled World War Speed. In this episode, they look at the use of uppers by both the Allies and the Axis in the 40s. So um, it made them more aggressive in combat but they didn't know if they'd ever sleep again.
2: It totally ruined their taste in music too. It made baseball more fun oh, yeah. to watch.
1: <laughs> oh, that that's what'll do it?
2: And and paint drying too. Wow. Yeah. I mean, back when they were
0: all on, on uppers, like they just played a lot better.
1: Yeah. So, so Benzedrine was the American version of Speed. Yeah. That was uh, sold in pharmacies. And, um, Pervitin was the Nazi version of speed. Right. So so check your brands to see if you're using Yeah, the that's American. before
2: they were vetting brand names in the pharmaceutical inus- industry cuz Pervitin is probably not a good one to use.
1: You know, I don't speak German, so maybe that just means super powerful and awesome in German.
2: It still gets truncated yeah. to Perv, yeah.
1: In any event, in any event, <laughs> it's so all design. It's all design. So this is how they dealt with human factors in World War II was just giving the Augment soldiers, the human, yeah. yeah. augment the human with more speed. And uh, yeah, but now we're just like-
2: Some would say that's exactly what the Sackler family is doing.
1: Oh, yeah. No, they were just augmenting their bank Let's accounts. Let's remind
2: our generous
0: listeners here who the Sacklers
1: are.
2: Well, they're one of the families behind the entire, as I understand it, one of the families behind the entire opioid crisis because they- Essentially, lobbied Congress to allow them to make a slight, slight change to the heroin molecule to sell it legally. So they're not good people. Well, Uh, I'm sure if you're next door neighbors to them, they've always seemed good because lots of people who do bad things do. And it's not like they're
1: donate a lot of uh, money to museums
2: all around the world, but they have not done a good thing. Um, and this is a very common thing in the in the in our culture, in the service of money and corporations and profits, it is fairly easy to do things that are really bad for society and make a lot of money for it and do it entirely legally. It's almost
0: as if one could structure an entire industry around that way of thinking or
2: multiple right? or multiple
1: yeah or all of them. Spoiler: It's just capitalism all the way down.
2: Well, yeah, you know, I have a little, yeah. Oh, I, you know, I don't think this you is have to capital. Have a
1: rejoinder: Well, we it's don't, not capital. We don't I, live I don't in capitalism.
2: Nathan has gone full socialist yet. Oh. Well, I don't. I just don't think that we live in capitalism anymore. I think capitalism did a really good job of feeding people and housing people and bringing up, you know, reducing poverty in the world. But that's not, you know, for the last. 40 years that's not what we live under we live under corporatism
1: yeah. where
2: only corporations can do no wrong and have rights that people don't and you you know lobby and buy congress so that they can mm-hmm. do more of said citizens united broke right?
1: a lot of things yes
2: and and that's not really what capitalism is we we had a perfectly serviceable Society for many decades under capitalism. I feel
1: like Marx would disagree with you.
2: I think, yeah, I
0: think the the we there is is a
1: pretty <laughs> is
0: the the we in that sentence is is doing a lot of heavy lifting.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, incentivizing people to make better things is a really good and empowering. Uh, decentralized ideas and development is a really good strategy.
0: But I'm interested in going down this road. Yeah. So corporatism Mm -hmm. is a new word for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you coin this?
2: No, no, it's been out there. Okay. I'm sure.
0: So you're probably, are are you reading like self-published newsprinty
2: Scenes? (laughs) Are you going to knock scenes now?
0: that that freaks are printing out without the auspices? Okay. So capitalism, you're saying- capitalism fed a lot of people, did a lot of good. And I'm just going to put a pin in that for now because I want to get to this <laughs> conversation. But what we're in now is corporatism, which is different than capitalism and bad. It has not been good for most people, yeah. I think most, I, I agree. Can you explain how we got from capitalism to corporatism?
2: Oh, well, we got uh, there—there's a lot of ways we got there. One of the biggest ways is that we've trained people for 70 years on absolutely defunct, wrong economic theory. And we've trained, uh, you know, two generations of business people now on ideas that are unsupportable and don't work. So the idea of rich people creating jobs— their yeah, job that's creators. That's a total lie. It's a total lie and it's demonstrably untrue. Anyone that believes in science can't believe in that because it's too easy to disprove with any kind of evidence, yet most business people believe that. Can you can you can you crack open that that egg a little bit for me? Oh, meaning why Make it's not true? Make a thought omelet for us. Make a thought omelet. Did you want some cheese or some scallions?
1: All right, <laughs> we're good. Um,
2: well, so actually- so, why? so rich people aren't job, job creators, right. you're so, saying. So the best way to, to to see this is go to YouTube, type in Nick Hanauer, H-A-N-A-U-E-R. He did a Ted University talk, which was brilliant. And in five and a half minutes, he eviscerates this concept that rich people create jobs. Here's a billionaire who self-admittedly got lucky that he got to invest in you know Costco and Amazon or wherever he made all his money and he is very much a proponent of many of the fiscal policies that i think that you would agree on but he's not a socialist but he also doesn't think that money is the measure of everything and he's e- it's easy for him to prove and he much better than i that first of all if we were i think he shows a graph of you know unemployment and employment and says we've never had more rich people in the world if it were true that rich people create jobs, then we would never have more jobs available than than today, and that's just not true. Yeah, But it comes down to, you know, rich people have—they have the same needs we do, only sometimes a little more, you know, with more yachts. But for the most part, you know, they can mm-hmm. only wear so many clothes and buy so many cars and houses and— like. If you have a billion dollars, you are not contributing back into the economy at the rate of someone in even the upper middle class. Mm-hmm. So their money goes to hedge funds and overseas accounts, and it goes into all sorts of things that don't help the economy. Yeah, except, it doesn't
1: go into the local, the right. actual. They're not buying things exactly that right. have that multiplier effect in what the economy. What does?
2: What helps the economy the most, and who's doing it? Middle class people with jobs. People with jobs make jobs, and he's the first one to say, if you're in business, the last thing you want to do is hire another person because that's an expense. You only hire another person when you absolutely have to because you have so much business that you need to cover it, right? So the chicken here or the egg, however you want to look at it, is people that have money, jobs, that are spending their money locally locally. And that spurs economic activity. And if you go back and look through our economic history, you only see economic development where there's lots of money being spent in the economy, not outside the economy in investment funds and all sorts of other stuff. So it's middle-class people. It's lower-class people who put their money back into the economy almost immediately that spur economic activity, not rich people.
1: Yeah, because you're... You're eating out, you're yeah. You buying things. Buy
2: jeans, you yeah. take your family on vacation. You know, there's only so many vacations you can take when you have a yeah. billion dollars.
1: So the money is just sitting there not doing anything but making more of itself without actually benefiting people or creating anything.
2: Yeah. So that's just one of many business myths like... Another one is the business of business is business. And we can't attribute exactly who said this. There's some disagreement. But basically, it's an excuse for businesses behaving poorly. Oh, well, you know if you want to give some money to a charity or to a local group, like you, that's okay. You do that on your own time with your your individual income. But a business's business is to make money. and it's it's just not true. Businesses in this country started out, corporations started out as social entrepreneurship organizations. You could not get a charter. Well, this goes back to, you know, this is definitely my alternate view of history. The American War for Independence was the first anti-corporate war. And we won. And the founding fathers were not pro-business. I mean, there were pro sole proprietorship and partnership, etc. But they were not pro-corporation because they just beat the corporations in order to become free and not be under their thumb. So they knew corporations have value. There are things that can happen with a corporation that you just can't get to happen otherwise. If you need to build a bridge or a dam, you need to build something big, you need the protection that a corporation as a, a corporate entity affords you. But the reason you have to go charter a corporation from the government, in this case, the state government, is because originally they wanted to make sure you had a social mission. You want a a corporation? What are you going to do? We're going to build a bridge that's going to benefit society? Great. Here's your corporate citizenship. Go for it. Now we're, you know, 180 degrees away from that where you can get a corporation online without any social mission. And now we have things like B Corps where... Mm -hmm. We're having legal trouble <laughs> starting companies that want to have a social mission that then have other priorities, like we're going to be nice to our communities and our and our employees and other people, and need protection from shareholders who then have lawsuits that come and say, "Hey, that money on free lunches that you spend—that's actually our profit. You're taking that money out of our, our out of our pocket. Stop that." And corporations now need protection in order to do these things. It's a 180 from where we started as a country. But the B Corps, et cetera, are an attempt to get back to where we were in the 1700s because we've gone a long way away from that. So that's the difference to me between corporateness and capitalism. Corporateness says corporations can do anything they want and they're the most important life form on earth or certainly in our country. And we must do everything we can to protect them. And capitalism says, regardless of what your corporate entity or whether you're just an individual, treating money a certain way and treating investment a certain way and helping people build things tends to make more good things that society needs.
1: Because there's an incentive. And, right. And yeah, yeah. we exactly. saw like the the sort of counter example or... Um, Compare, contrast example as you like look at the Soviet Union. Right.
2: Communism and, so, and certain forms of socialism.
1: Yeah. So with, with, yeah, the Soviet, it didn't, that wasn't really a social, it didn't strike me as, it was no, Soviet. But, it's not really socialist. I'm just it's saying not related really, But systems, Yeah, it's yeah. not really communist. It was the, the Soviet. The was, central control
2: and planning and the- Did not work. And the lack of incentives.
1: At all. Yeah. The,
2: yeah. That was just a dictatorship. Yeah, but it was founded well, on a a-, a a philosophy yeah. that there, was not bad in its own right, it right? But
0: it was a bill of goods. Work. The yeah. philosophy, I mean, yeah. it was
2: sold yeah. a philosophy as yep. a bill of goods, yeah. and then it turned into a straight up dictatorship. Yeah, you saw the same thing in China. Yeah, in yeah, other places. Yeah. Well, and so you know, capitalism just says markets are really good at optimizing resources. So let the market decide. You know, let the invisible hand of the market, rather than let some guy at the top of the government structure decide. And and in general, that's more true than not. The problem is if you don't put the things you care about in the market, those are the things that get optimized out of it, like happiness. If there's no variable for happiness well, in the market, it gets optimized out really quickly.
1: Well, and I think also what we're seeing now is like you can't just have capitalism because there are some things that are social goods that the market does not reward. Yep. And that's the issue with like healthcare. We're especially seeing that now in America. And transportation like b- through these ride-hailing apps especially and these other forms of transportation experiment that are going hog wild yeah. in San Francisco, which is a tiny city for those listeners who have not been here. It we, is We
2: punch above our
1: weight. Oh my gosh, we are the we're like the, a tiny tiny city and and all of these transportation experiments are clogging our streets, so you like trip over yeah. scooters. Not as bad in LA, but uh, and it's going to
2: only get worse with automated cars. Sadly, oh that
1: oh uh, that yeah. Put a put a pin in yeah, that because we'll I that. that's I have a but but I hear what you're saying and you're right. So I,
0: yeah, self-driving cars are the killer bees of this
2: generation. No, because we, I think that are actually going to happen.
1: Well, yeah, yeah,
0: we all thought never, killer bees were coming too. Not
2: all of us thought. Uh, I mean, like. Oh. Even when it was a huge craze in the 80s, the projections still were like, oh, yeah, they're not going to get to California until like 2000 something. The the mania that the media creates is usually way in advance. But your point, Erica, about there's no one right system, and I don't think right. there ever can be. But I think we need to recognize that there's this frission or this interplay between something that we would normally term capitalism and something that we would normally term some form of socialism. Right. And they have to be able to live together and interact and sort of balance each other out if we want mm-hmm. the society that we want.
1: Absolutely. And that's
2: that's a design problem.
1: That That is a design problem. And we should probably mention to our listeners that this is an area where you've done a lot of work.
2: A Af- fair yeah. Because yeah. <laughs>
1: you uh, ran an MBA program.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I got this amazing experience. This great opportunity that no one gets, which is start a new MBA program with no history, no legacy, so there's nothing you have to kowtow to. No faculty that you have to, like, you know, satisfy in an academic sense. Start with a blank sheet of paper. It was a total design process, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you—and most people think of the DMBA as, oh, how cute. Like, you're going to teach business to designers. That's that's probably really necessary. And we did some of that, but really— The charter was create a prototype for an MBA program for the 21st century. And that's what we were always doing was, what do we need to teach now that's different? What do we not need to teach? What do we prioritize? What do we want to jettison? And then not just curricular, but in a pedagogical sense, how should we be teaching differently these things? Mm -hmm. And that was great. That was 10 years of awesomeness.
1: Yeah. So what... Uh, I don't know if you can summarize ten years of awesomeness uh, in one sentence, but what w- would you say are the big differences in this program? Well, so
2: uh, well, and I can't speak for the program today because I've been yeah. away for three or four years, and it's it's definitely evolved yeah,
1: during the time. To- right. you know, well, the so core the, of your work, the, on the big this things
2: were, you know, we can't teach the same old bullshit, right? Like rich people create jobs. Um so we can't teach the same economic theory but our students still needed to understand neoclassical economics but they also needed to know where it was broken mm-hmm. and what might replace it. So we had to we never had time to introduce them too much to ecological economics and environmental economics and especially behavioral economics but at least that was part of the core not mm-hmm. a some obscure elective that you might be able to take. We also taught them In a studio context, so they had studio classes where they had to make solutions every semester, sometimes twice a semester, and that making was very designerly, obviously, is not something that most business students get. I mean, they make presentations and they Mm -hmm. make plans, but they don't make solutions and they don't make, you know, products and services, et cetera. So that was a piece of it. And then the other thing is that, you know, there were a lot of under-the-radar things like the most important class in the whole program was something called Live Exchange, which is all about communication and collaboration skills. Mm-hmm. Oh, which, that's,
1: that is, yeah. so I was just having a conversation with a client today about how that is not taught as a skill. Yeah. And that's a huge failure point that's invisible to most organizations.
2: Uh, organizations, academic programs, you know, it's it's seen as a, nice to have at best, you know, especially for women, oh, go into HR and learn, oh, yeah. you know. Well, it's
1: seen as an attribute of an individual yes. rather than as either a learned skill or an organizational dynamic.
2: Well, and when you sit down and think about it, like, what is the majority of your interaction in your whole life? Communication and collaboration. Hopefully yeah. collaboration. So we around knew...
1: a topic or in a domain. And everybody focuses on topic domain. Yeah. So called hard skills and completely
2: hard
0: skills. Yeah. Oh that's god. Like, that's, Let's... <laughs> speaking
1: of the military.
0: Soft skills drives me up yeah. the fucking wall. Well or soft sciences that, oh, or no, soft Kill anything, me. right? We yeah. can
1: we can go back to our discussion about yeah. the Navy because you Please. know that hard skills and soft skills were a construct of a military training program. They were just trying to figure out a term. It was such... um, Robert...
2: But the military is better at teaching these sort of leadership and communication skills than most degree programs are. But
1: that wasn't the intent of the designation. The intent of the designation was just, oh, what do we call the skills we're measuring? How do we differentiate those from other skills? And they happen to call it hard skills. And they're like, oh, now we've established one side of a dichotomy. Oh, now we're going to talk about the other skills. Let's just call those soft skills. And this is something that if you look in... The literature, in the practice, in the way HR departments and hiring and recruiting and all of this talks about these things, people take this as a real thing in the world as opposed to a completely arbitrary designation yep. that was made ad hoc in a particular context. Yep. And nobody knows where this comes from, but everybody's like, oh, of course, these are things that exist in the same way that like right brain, left brain, yep. which is another fiction. Another thing, yeah. And so I would love to well, and so you're, recategorize like skills and competencies like that.
2: But And, and you're absolutely right, but the designation ultimately i don't think it's the problem because there's mm. always going to be people that denigrate the, the invisible as yes. not being real regardless of what it's that called is
1: the problem
2: so right now. getting back to the business program and we knew that this was the single most important class in the whole program but we also knew no one's going to come to the program you know like yeah, oh, oh we're gonna hug ccmba right <laughs> so we did do a lot of things that were sort of uh, not bait and switch, but a little under the radar. A little,
1: a little stealthy, a little Trojan horsey. Trojan yeah. horsey is
2: a good, yeah. a good way to say it. And, and I used to tell people, you know, that these are the skills in that class that my students were going to use for the rest of their lives, that you could, you know, they could win the lottery and never have to work a day in their life and they're still going to use these skills. And then, of course, one of my students won the lottery. So that was sort of like a truth, you know, whatever. Wow.
1: But like, it, uh, like it was a,
2: wasn't that much. He lives in San Francisco. It was enough to like put into a bank account for his kids' college someday. That's but, still, that's but, but it was though. still, you know, in any event. So it was an opportunity to rethink all of these things, mm-hmm. take a designerly approach to them and use new tools, which is I think another big part of the problem is that we use these antiquated tools that don't even have places or variables for the things yeah. that we care about. And when
1: you say tool, I think you're using tool in a specialized context. We're not talking about Figma or Sketch. We're talking about frameworks for thinking yeah, yeah, and yeah, problem solving. And yeah, models yeah, exactly.
2: Like uh, you know, I am you know, like a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: We came up with a new it's a it's a design MBA hammer.
2: hammer I like that. Screwdriver maybe. Multi-headed. God, yeah. I would love spanner. an MBA hammer. <laughs> I think we, we need to. Go, okay, nobody listening can do this. We're going to go register this domain and start this company in the next forty-eight hours. MBA, MBA hammer. hammer, MBA yeah. or or DMBA hammer. Yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah. So funny, funny thing. You know, in my in just enough research, my first book, one of the the headers is "Put an MBA out of work." Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, and and certainly put the wrong kind of MBA. And there's a yeah. lot of them. I used to tell my colleagues because I have colleagues that teach business all over the world. And for the most part, a lot of them were really jealous at the opportunity that I had, you know, at this little design school, right? It's not like I'm at Harvard or Stanford or something. Yeah,
1: it's CCA, which is here in San Francisco. Right. I
0: mean, it's barely accredited.
1: (laughs) That's not true. It's a school with a pretty good reputation.
2: It's certainly in California. It's certainly, you know, San Francisco, the Bay Area. But in any event, I got this blank sheet of paper, which they never had this opportunity, right? And they can't slough off the old legacy in their programs. And I'm not sure it's possible for any existing program to really change um, and that's really sad because yeah. we have a bunch. We have a bunch of new tools. We need a whole lot more tools. All of those, by the way, are design projects. Um, because you can't use the same tools and get new outcomes than we've gotten in the past.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is in line with Buckminster Fuller's yeah. thinking, right? and Einstein,
2: right? Like, yeah. Didn't he say you can't pro- solve a problem with the same thinking that created yeah. it?
1: And and Buckminster Fuller said, if I want to change how you think, to paraphrase, yep. I will. Give you a tool, the use of which will change how you think. So, Man,
2: there was a designer, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, but he was... The problem with Buckminster... I love... Fucking love Bucky. Uncle Bucky, right? The problem is that in his heart, he was an engineer and he was yes. overly optimistic about humans. And this is... uh this is one of the problems we're facing right now with digital design and everything yeah. going to hell, like in your book. <gasps> Ru- is Ruined by Design. Ruined by Design.
2: Available now in zine form. In yes. zine form, I just saw. yeah.
1: Yes, go to ruinedby.design and you can order you should your zine.
2: Sell it with a pair of those little photographic gloves.
1: Uh, yeah, because it, it'll get all. It fucks up it your gets hands. All so of bad. your hands. Ink. Just like. Uh, digital surveillance capitalism has gotten all over our society. So the pro- the problem is that I think a lot of these if you, designers- If
0: you read it and you work at Twitter, you can have blood and ink on your hands. <sighs> I-,
1: I think there are designers and engineers who are not well-meaning, but they go into these complex problems without the tools, without the correct tools to solve the problem or to understand or articulate the problem. And they are overly optimistic about human behavior. And I would say like Twitter, which started right across the hall from us, we knew and were friends with several of the people there and they were not not Jack evil per se, yeah. but I think they went into it not at all yeah. considering the human capacity for abuse, for yeah. stalking. Well, for... they never
0: encountered any of it before. Yeah, because they came
1: from a place of privilege. And so they had this yeah. optimism that came from this blind spot. Yep. And I think Buckminster Fuller, Had kind of the same thing where he's like, oh, it's possible to have a planet in a society that is like omni sustaining or whatever sort of fullerism he used for that. And because it's possible, it's inevitable. And I think there's the same sort of thing with the the technology. I agree. Tech positivism, which is like, oh, it's possible. And so. So good technology will bring out the best in people. As a, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it that was, yeah, not. that was
2: the web, right? Like, yeah. de- let's decentralize everything and let everyone yeah. be, you know, self-expressive and have a way of talking and meeting the rest of the world and things will get better. And in some sense, yes, that's part of the formula. But you're right, there was a part of the formula that was uncounted for. Well, it and, didn't account for assholes. Mo- mostly, yeah. yeah. And But I think there's also a lot of people that, end up being assholes inadvertently. Right. Yeah. And I don't want to kill the aspiration. I think that that's really important is people no, asp- wanting to make things better.
0: Yeah, the aspiration is fine, but you still have to you have to ask yourself, what could the what what right. could the worst two things, what could the worst people do here? Yep.
2: And what
0: will the use of this tool
2: do to people? Right. Well, which is to me why we need better tools to help us evaluate right. these things, right? Like yeah. SWOT diagrams are, you know, are awesome tools if you use them right, and they're probably used right less than 5% of the time. Yeah. Just because people have never been trained how to really use one. And the first thing that they're missing is the research. You know, it's easy to put garbage mm-hmm. in and get garbage out.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, and I'd say that the other thing that happened is the one of the reasons why the bad behavior Uh, what's the right word for it? exploded or mushroomed or... Propagated? Propagated is, going back to capitalism, uh, the incentives because the designers and engineers who, who created the systems, because in many cases they were venture funded and got sort of tied to that model of growth first, then business model. The easiest business model is is the advertising business model. That's these, okay, I guess we have a lot of people. What do we do with them? We advertise to them. And then what happened is you have an economic incentive to do the things that get you the most, quote unquote, engagement. And in many cases, the most engagement is when there's the most, as you mentioned, the human emotion that people don't take into consideration.
2: Well, and and so part of this is, teaching people about humans and we don't mm-hmm. do a lot of that especially not in the tech sector and but even in the business sector you know year, a few years ago was all this big rage that business business programs need to teach more ethics okay so put an ethics course in the business program that's the wrong approach because you can't isolate it what what they didn't do is realize that no ethics has to be part of Every class has to be part of accounting, has to be part of economics, yeah. has to be part of business models. It's foundational. It, yeah, you can't separate it right. out as this thing. And in general, we don't think, teach things in a terribly integrative way anyway. Well, I mean,
0: remember when we when we were starting in this business and we would, you know, we design and build a site and then we would send it over
2: for usability.
1: Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> yeah,
2: maybe. But I mean, that was... I, I my experience was that most of the people that were designing and building them understood usability. They just didn't have necessarily the responsibility of doing the exhaustive testing.
0: Well, you worked at a place that was ninety that's, percent better than most that's then.
2: true. You're right. So because
0: yeah. in most places, that was it it was, it was throw it over it the was wall. a step,
2: yeah, yeah. My job here is to make it look good. Your job is to figure out how right. to make it work. Yeah, and no, then somebody.
0: True. Somebody in charge of usability would come and tell you that something wasn't working, and you'd you'd become a raging asshole until they went away, and that thing would
2: never get fixed. Yeah, it, these are these are reoccurring problems in culture.
1: So the the design MBA program that that you're working uh, with at CCA was giving business people, these problem solving tools and a way of looking at the world and everything. And another approach to doing that is the design thinking curriculum that's popping up all over the place. That's either happening like I had a friend, this is this is apparently even in the law profession, there sure. are people who teach design thinking workshops for lawyers. So what would you say is the point of differentiation between a design thinking and I know it's probably like, you know, it's the Atkins diet of what you were doing for, for business people. But what's the difference between the the way that you were thinking about the, the, the curriculum that you were developing and the design thinking curriculum, which is also targeted at business people? Well,
2: it was integral because, you know, we uh, at the very heart of the way we were re, recontextualizing business was design thinking, systems thinking, sustainability and what we called sort of new business values. Um, So it was absolutely integral. And, you know, to me, design thinking, the the big contribution that design thinking brings to problem solving and other forms of problem solving like scientific method and adductive and inductive thinking, whatever, is sort of an experimental approach, but different than scientific thinking. Everyone usually um, focuses on the prototyping aspect, prototype, prototype, Because it's
1: visible, because it's visible. And there's a huge bias towards visible work.
2: And it's a very... Big difference between how a lot of other people are taught to problem solve, which is ruminate and work on the perfect solution and then put it out there, right? Not test it Mm -hmm. and and try it out. But the piece that most people miss about design thinking is is the reframing part. And you can only do the reframing based on the qualitative customer or design research. And so those two things are really the critical thing that are missing because it's really hard for you as a designer to go to your boss or your boss's boss in a company or go back to your client and say, hey, we did really careful design research. We really talked to customers and looked at them in a, in a qualitative way. And what we found is, We shouldn't be making this. Like this isn't going to be a successful it. But what we did find was that there are these three other things that are going to be way more successful. So we need to, now we say pivot, but that used Mm. to be, you know, we need to reframe the solution. That's a really hard thing for any designer, even a senior designer, to go back to their client and say, you hired us to make this and we want to make something else. And yet, and yet, that's the Fucking job you signed up yeah, for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, and that, that's the most important part. Yep. Designers, especially in companies, but even with long relationships with clients, complain all the time that they get a design brief and they're like, why why are we making this? This is not the right thing. And it's because often designers are the closest people to the customer, understand the customer in ways that no one else in the company other than maybe customer service understands. Sometimes. sometimes. And well, if they're doing their job, right? Um, yeah. And know inherently that this isn't the thing we should be doing. Right. There are better things, better opportunity, better business opportunities, but aren't in a position to go back and say, remake this decision because it's the wrong decision. And
0: oh. don't do any things to put themselves in that position.
2: Sometimes. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's the, that's it's getting better. Let it's me not take as bad a, as le- it used to be. But le- let me take a rant break. OK,
1: we should have like a drop for this. You, like, you do zinger. need a
2: audio cue for, no
1: this. for a rant break. Rant break. Rant <laughs> break.
0: Yeah. So, I you know, I've seen designers complain that people are telling them what to do. And then once people start saying, hey, you figure it out, they start complaining about that. Yep. This is the job that you signed up for. It takes having these arguments. At some point, you're going to have to hope, hopefully get tired of spending your days pushing pixels around a screen and realize that the important stuff to design goes way beyond that. It has to do with pushing much more molecularly complicated things around a board. And that's when you actually start designing.
2: Yeah. Everyone has to be a systems designer. Yeah, But part of the answer to that isn't just admonishing people to say, hey, this is part of the job you signed up for, you didn't realize, but now you have to do this. It's giving them the tools to actually do that because you can't mm-hmm. just drop them off and say, you go back to the VP and say, this is the wrong thing. Yeah. And you want to make, like, you need to understand their perspective. You need to understand how the decision was made in the first place. You need to understand the business context for why that mm-hmm. decision was made. You know, you can't just go back and say, I don't think this is right. Uh, I used to tell this story to my students all the time. You know, you're sitting in a in a C-level meeting, you're in the boardroom and there's Three solutions on the middle of the you know board table and the CEO turns to you as, you know, first turns to the, yeah, turns to you as a designer and says, here's the three options. You think we should choose option B? Why?" And traditionally designers are sort of taught to sort of hook their neck back and twirl the hair and go, well, it looks better and it uses this typeface and I like this and yeah. I was inspired by this and blah, blah, blah. Great. Now that CEO- At which
0: point their seats should eject-
2: now the CEO turns to the, you know, the VP of marketing and says, well, you think we should do option A. Why? Well, we pulled the audience and the market share and whatever, and we, you know, 63% more people are going to buy option A than said they would buy a b- option B. Okay, that may still be wrong. It may have been bad research. In fact, mm-hmm. I can guarantee you it was probably bad research.
1: Absolutely. So,
2: but you're the CEO, like you need to make a decision. And these are the two arguments you have, mm-hmm. which one are, which one can you trust You're going to trust the guy that said 63% more people said they'd buy option A. Right. And that's a design problem in the sense that designers need to be able to walk in and know how to confidently say, I know you heard this. I know you think this. I can show you differently. I can show you this, this, and this. And this is why this option should be the one we choose. And and they just, most of them aren't taught.
1: Because, yeah, as you said, they're not never taught. Because sometimes you know uh, a person pursuing a business or marketing career could be exposed to design thinking, but what I would love to see more of, and yeah. this is like the thing I'm most interested in now, yeah. is business thinking for designers and engineers and everyone else. Well, yeah, yeah, and absolutely. And the problem is because it sounds it sounds often like the opposite of every reason somebody went in to be a designer. And I think this is because we're operating on an obsolete definition of design. As, and an
2: obsolete one of business too. Yeah. yeah,
1: And uh, where it's like, oh, a, as a designer, I create an artifact and and hand it off. And I'm the sole author of this artifact. I can put my name on this thing. I'm going to be the Dieter Rams of like food delivery apps or something like that. This is still cool. the model of design well, I, I that actually, we have.
2: I, I think that that's changed a great deal, actually. We haven't, most reputable design programs around the world have not taught that way in, you know, 10 or 15 years, but that's still half a generation. So that
1: means everybody's manager thinks like that. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah.
2: And and certainly the people yeah. who are in the you know, position of investment or oversight mm-hmm. or governance or, you know, yeah. executive administration still probably think that way.
1: And so what's happening is that because this the growth capitalism venture-backed model is driving so much of, if not all of the work, the work that's being held up as an example or an ideal, uh, that people who come in, to this as younger designers, if they've received a design education, if they've received one that is more holistic and systems-based, are forced to produce so quickly in these quote-unquote delivery-driven environments.
2: But it's agile.
1: That they don't have a moment to have that conversation. They come into these environments and it's like, okay, okay, produce, 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 because they're in a position, even if they have the background, they're in a position where it's like you are feeding the engineering and developing machine.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is the history of Microsoft, right? Through the 90s and the 2000s, nobody on the planet spent more money on doing design research and qualitative research and user research sort of the right way than, than this company. And it never made it to the products for two reasons. One is it was always too late for that design cycle, that engineering yeah. cycle. Oh, we'll put, oh, we'll do it for the next cycle, right? And, and so that cycle mm-hmm. never comes. And two, there was never anyone at the C-level who could say, nope, that's not shipping because it's not good enough in this way.
1: Because no, nobody had there was a good no definition oth- of good.
2: Well, but there was no authority there. Yeah. I mean, I think people had, you know, everyone in the C-suites were buying nice cars and how, nice houses and they knew what good was, but no one was willing to say no. Delay this product because it you fucked up this aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And without that, you don't, you know, there's no power in design. Now that's a different kind of design than an effete, you know, power mad, self absorbed person sitting in a Seigmaster. VP of design. No. <laughs> I didn't say that. Um a VP of design or a, a C you know chief design officer role who who, you know, doesn't use that authority in the right way, or has the wrong understanding and appreciation for design too.
0: Why would they have changed if everything was working out for them? They well, had no
2: motivation to change how they were, do, how well, they were working. Because I think people, lots and lots of people want more in the world than just a nice house and a, a nice life. I mean, I think there are, especially designers have always been motivated by make the world a better place. Now that- Oh, I a, think that, I don't no, believe that. No, for a long time, I, I think that. that was reduced to make it prettier in the way that I think is pretty. But I don't think anyone goes into design wanting to make the world Worse or uglier, they just do it as a as an after you know as an accident from what they were trying to do.
1: Yeah, because they have a bad model of human behavior, and I think this or is no where, model, yeah, or no, like model. no understanding, yeah. yeah. And I think this is where behavioral economics comes into yes. it, because I think interactive design is essentially just a presentation layer on behavioral economics.
2: Yeah, and well, so, and and on business, right? So on yeah, the business model, exactly. The same the same problem exists in the business world. In fact, even worse, which is. They learn all the wrong things about human behavior. Mm -hmm. I mean, Economics 101 says people are rational actors. Can you name one?
1: Not at all.
2: No, because it's not true, right? So business people, in fact, are taught to take the humanity out of business because the business of business is business. You know, deal with that in your personal life. Um, So they don't make, make room for this at all. And even on the marketing side, which used to be a little bit more humanistic in terms of a holistic understanding mm-hmm. yeah, of people. Yeah, they at
1: least know something, something, emotions, stories. Manipulate,
2: like, manipulate, you know, manipulate, whatever's yeah. good for us, we'll, we'll convince them to buy, has gotten ever more increasingly quantitative, right? Yeah. So now the data will tell us the answer. And this is the worst part of where we've come to. Mm-hmm. And if you wanna say, like, what what really infected Capitalism to become corporatism, it's the quant approach to everything, the quant optimizing yeah. of everything, that numbers are the answer to everything.
1: Yeah, and that comes from that other terrible business maxim, if you can measure it, you can manage it. Oh,
2: God, yes. There you go.
1: Yeah, and that is just— Tell a- that
2: to Uber, right? Like, what brought down the entire brand and about a billion dollars worth of value? Currently it trading at 37. It wasn't the engineering— it wasn't the technology. It wasn't even how they scoped the product. It was how they treated people and when people found out, right? So I had a, I have a whole article on Medium about how businesses need a Deanna Troy. They need someone there as an ombudsman that is looking at these issues and ha- can raise the hand and go, we have a problem we need to deal with that could become really serious.
1: But a chief humanist? Businesses a chief need human a chief officer, humanist. yeah. Cho, <laughs> but but
0: wait a minute! You just did the thing that you said we couldn't do. What? Which is have a single class for ethics? Back to that.
1: Yeah, a single humanist. So,
0: so a single person in charge of humanity <laughs> sounds <laughs> like a single class for ethics.
2: Yeah. So let me let me be more clear about this. I think that humanity and these issues are everyone's responsibility, but there still has to be someone who's responsible for seeing that it happens. Mm -hmm. So when I had my design company, Vivid, many years ago, anyone could suggest uh, technology to use, a feature to have everyone on the team had equal power of suggestion of what they thought the solution should be. But there were specific people on the team who had a responsibility Mm -hmm. that the conversation happened and that it concluded with a decision by a certain time. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the chief human officer, right? Like someone that, that makes sure that this conversation is happening, but not the only person having this conversation. That's the difference to me.
1: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think like, I'm, I'm so happy we're at least past the holacracy concept oh, of like everybody's just going to do the sort of do the right thing if we kind of leave them. as, in as much Dish. vacation day as you so oh, as you want. God. But God. dare to yeah. take
2: one and we'll ostracize yeah. you. I'm not against the experimentation. Right. I mean, sometimes yeah. you could look yeah. at it at the prototype stage and go you could pilot
1: it. You yeah, could pilot this is the not going to work.
2: Like let's just not even bother because we know this is going to work. Yeah. Like if you go back to the uh, I think it was shy at day in the ni- mid-90s. The hot did, desking? Yeah, the hot desking and, and everyone, nobody can have a, a, nobody can nest anywhere. And you got, you checked out all your tools in the morning from a, lo- you know, like a locker.
1: That's coming back now.
2: And we knew that it was going to fail. It was obviously going to fail and they did it anyway and it failed, right? Yeah. So I'm not against experimentation, but I think that We have to, you can be smart about it. Evidence-based,
1: that's what makes something an experiment. And I think this is what people lose in design and business. They equate experimenting with just trying something as opposed to using critical thinking, scientific method, whatever to say, oh, we either have a research objective, a question, a hypothesis, we're going to run an experiment And then we're going to see what we learn from the experiment. But they don't, they just try things and they don't have a way of checking to see like, yeah. was something falsified? It's not an experiment unless something could be falsified. But
2: what what did that actually test, right? Yeah, it didn't so, test anything. New thank deal, you. man, new deal. Yeah, thank you for mentioning the fourth C that has not been mentioning yet. These are the well, skills- I thought we couldn't say that on the air. Yeah, <laughs> these are the skills that we need for the 21st century. We should be teaching, prioritizing. We talked about communication and collaboration and maybe those are part of the same, I don't know, whatever. We talked about, we didn't say creative thinking, but when you're yeah. talking about design, and that's creative mm-hmm. thinking skills. Critical thinking skills are the yeah. other ones, right? And that's
1: what gets left out of design thinking. Oh, design yeah. thinking is yeah. not critical thinking. It's not asking questions. Design thinking is following this process. And that is the biggest yep. bone I have to pick with design thinking is that it's not critical thinking. You can completely exist in your happy little sticky note bubble.
2: One, especially when you apply, I mean, we've all seen the shopping cart video from IDO and whatnot, which is fine. It's great. It's a good example, but it's not like- Erica just made a wanking I motion. know, I saw. <laughs> um, but, but when you put that into the context of a company with deadlines and schedules and personality conflicts and culture, et cetera, it doesn't necessarily play the the same way, and this is mm-hmm. why habitually design and innovation centers or teams within a company have always been separated for good reason from the rest of the company. And you know, it's it, it doesn't have to be as overt as Steve Jobs moving everyone across the street and putting up a pirate flag, but inside big companies, the same thing happens because. You know, design thinking needs some critical thinking and creative thinking need some space to happen and they need some time to happen. And they're often not given that, especially in big enterprises.
1: Yeah, they need to be separated from the day-to-day operations because because the, the way of running those operations is always backwards looking.
2: Yep, you're absolutely right.
1: And because forwards looking is exploratory and there are risks. And if you do it right, right, you're always taking a lot. Making a lot of small experiments, placing a lot of small bets, taking a lot of small risks, but you absolutely have to separate that from, you know, the whole thing going back to corporatism of shareholder value. Exactly. Because these things are not like what you learn from a failed experiment could be a th- thousand times more valuable than what you learn from continuing to make minute optimizations to the current operation. Well, this
2: is why things like um, there have been companies who have tried to take a process like Six Sigma, which is really good for optimizing manufacturing, um, and apply it to innovation. Because, hey, if it's really good here and I know how to do it, I can go do this now, right? Because that's the more fun thing anyway. And it's the antithesis of the method, right? So, yes, you need time to incubate new mm-hmm. solutions. The other thing is that um, too many corporate cultures can't make room for competition within the the organization itself. Because if you're coming up with something new, necessarily you are probably going to cannibalize someone else in the company right. and they're not going to like that. So it's in or their best interest to fight it.
1: In the worst possible way where they do it as like a weird sort of internal semi-secret bake-off. Oh, I've seen God. this happen in like big Like Amazon
2: having seven teams or five yeah. teams working on the same thing and exactly. not letting them talk to each other. I've seen
1: this yeah. again, which is the Ugh. other way they handle it where they're like, oh, we're going to have innovation and in internal competition, but we're going to do it in this really unfair, mean, terrible way of setting people against each other and yeah, well, so and that's so not good either. To
2: me, this is because they're not thinking of it creatively and they're not thinking of it critically, and there's no respect for humans being humans. This sort of goes back to the old VC adage: hey, nobody knows what's going to, you know, what's actually going to do and succeed. So we'll just spread our money around willy nilly, sort of like how some movie studios like fund a bunch Ten of
1: volcano crappy pictures,
2: crappy movies yeah. that everyone knows is going to be crappy. Yeah. I'm going back to cats here. Yes. They hide under the the adage, well, nobody really knows what's going to be a success. If you think critically, if you think creatively, you can at least narrow down those things. The smart investors don't throw their money everywhere. The smart investors aren't afraid of taking a, a chance, but they put them into, you know, yeah. investments that they've thought critically about, not just sort of spun it around because nobody knows.
1: Yeah. There's um there's a quote I use uh, a lot from this Wall Street Journal article uh, that I think it's called The Power of Thick Data, which is, all business is placing bets on human behavior. Yep. You'll never be certain. Internal he, or external. Yeah, yeah, internal or external. And you have to have evidence to be making informed decisions about human behavior.
0: By the way, Thick Data would be a great Star Trek spinoff. Or not a bad band name.
1: Thick dude. The backup thick dancers are, are lit.
2: Like, what did he do after the— He after got thick. The inter- he well, got, he, he's like in the sore. new series. He's in Picard. He oh, is? Oh,
1: right. Picard with the dog in the winery. Well,
2: so all of this, to me, a lot of this goes back to here. I've thought about this, you know, sort of done this in my professional life, but I've certainly thought about it from this systems perspective and business-y, design-y perspective for 13 years And we have built new tools. We've identified tools. And so to me right now, my priority is how do we get these tools out there to people? Mm -hmm. And some of these tools are still only conceptual. Nobody's actually made a triple bottom line or integrated bottom line spreadsheet yet. Um, But some of them are like there. We use the business model canvas every day. And so there's an evolution of it called Mm -hmm. the flourishing business canvas. We know about stakeholder analysis. We have some of these tools. And so now we have to get out there and get people to use them. So I've restructured my entire website now around these tools and, you know, download the tool here or – Maybe there's a note that says, hey, this would make a great design project for you because no one's made this one yet. But I think that's where we're at is we need to train people Mm -hmm. in how to do these things differently.
1: Yeah, because I gave... Uh, I I worked on an idea that was an evolution of the triple bottom line with a triple storyline. Yeah, exactly. I love it. I gave the talk
2: in London for the first
1: time in London and uh, people really liked it and so many people came up to me afterwards but their their question was like, who's already using this right now? And I, because they to go back to their boss, they had, yeah. to, they had to point to like, oh, you know. I, the like, person
2: next to me on the plane when I was doing the presentation may be doing it. Like, yeah. that's it, right? Because these are new ideas.
1: Yeah. And and everybody was like, oh, I need to, I want to know this sounds great, but who else is doing it? I'm like, feel free. No one's doing this right now. And that's the problem. That's
2: the blue ocean strategy.
1: Oh, no one's doing
2: it. Yeah. Well, so that's, I mean, designers are good Real designers, you know, systemic designers, designers that aren't just making things beautiful, not that beautiful things are bad, but like design thinking designers are model makers and we need lots of new models Mm -hmm. and then we need the tools to use those models well. And that's, I think, where we're really at as an industry. You know, we can have all the, you know, book cover competitions and poster competitions. That's a certain kind of design, but we are not, spending our resources, chiefly time, around making better design tools and better design models.
1: Yeah. So, really, really quickly. So, yeah. um, I want to just talk for like a minute yeah. about your, your update to your book. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. you wrote a book like, what, 10 years ago?
2: Yeah. Design
1: is the Problem. And then you updated it to Design is the Solution. And so what has changed and, how, and in what role do you yeah. want this book to serve?
2: Well, I mean, the title of any book is sort of a provocation anyway, right? So design as a problem was a good provocation, especially if you were going to talk to designers because you were putting them on notice. Mm-hmm. You know this well, Mike, right? It gets their attention. and. And so most of the book is the same. I've updated examples. There's a bunch of new tools there. But in the introduction to the book, I I specifically called out a certain kind of design as the problem. And that's the design that we're sort of talking about as being old, being appearance-based, being not systemic, not being concerned of these other things or not being concerned of the outcomes of design. That's been the problem. But I also identify that you know, designers are in this really awesome position. We're in the room when most of the bad decisions get made. We're there. We're not activists on the corner, on the sidewalk, yelling about it, right? Like we're in the room.
1: Where it happens, just like in Hamilton.
2: Oh, that's a whole nother thing. Don't. (laughs) In any event. So we're well positioned. If we have some better skills We have some better confidence and we've done a little bit better homework so we can spur out some examples. We can help change those decisions. We can make it more possible for better decisions to be made in that room rather than worse ones. Mm -hmm. And that's the design is the solution part, which is, you know, we're going to have to create our ways way out of these problems we're not gonna just sort of sit down and shut up and nothing gonna happen and they're gonna solve themselves. So we need new solutions. That's a designerly pro- process. We just need to make them better solutions. So I think design is the solution to fixing things because like not design is not the, the solution yeah. either, right? We just have to be better designers.
0: which starts with being better human beings. Yeah, I think I so. think I like, mean more I
2: full human beings. I agree with everything that you just said, and except when it's people that have to be responsible doing it.
0: no, I, I where where I'm still stuck is we're still convincing designers that there's a problem.
2: Yeah, in some cases. i I sort of feel like the designers that I see, I still teach, um I fact that this is my nineteenth year of teaching. I think all the students, at least, they know there's problems. They're the there, students do, know. like I. But they're I, the they're going into design and they're grad students, so they're they've been designers. I mean, I don't. I find it very hard to think that designers don't see the problems. I think the problem is, or the challenges for them, they just don't know what the hell to do about it. It's not that they don't want to fix. No, they don't want to do. They they. Well, because it's really daunting. I, it's telling really me I have to get an MBA really and then I have to understand economics and I have to do this. Well, step one is actually pretty easy. Well, care. Well, okay, step two. Okay. Stop working. And do what? Like they still make a need to make a living, right? I mean, I don't you think don't, it's easy. Well, I mean, we're probably going down a path here that you don't want to go down.
0: Uh Not being a full socialist yet or anything, but <laughs> uh, I have to go because yeah. I have to go oil my guillotine. Excellent, because it does need oiling every three. Well, hours. and
2: Rupert here has already said it's time. We've been in yeah. this room too long. And he's
1: like, "Hello, I'm here to get you. Give me snacks."
2: Exactly. Which, to be continued later. Yeah, then. to be
1: continued. The revolution is to be continued, and then
2: we'll talk about Hamilton. Right.
1: Yeah, so it's it's really How handy. Do you not like Hamilton.
2: You mean the site, the fact that it's misogynist and homophobic? Oh, nothing. We'll leave it at that. If you're oh, my
1: interested. fucking... This
0: is the guy who was telling me about how great... Telling us about how great things were in the 1700s. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, Take yeah. us out, Erica. <laughs> oh. So it's really... She doesn't get a vote in your world.
1: Oh, um, <laughs> my... So it's, if, if Rupert you're... Rupert is
2: saying, let's go.
1: Have some snacks. Uh, so if any of you are, are interested in uh, reading Design is the Solution or... Make It So, or any of other Nathan's fantastic thinking and writing, it is very easy to find on the internet at nathan.com.
2: When did you get nathan.com? I think it was 93 or 94. And I felt really bad about it, by the way. I felt so bad that I, one Nathan, was taking Nathan for everyone, that... Now there's a there's always been from day one a page of the other Nathans. So now it's the League of Nathans and Who other are the Nathans. other Nathans? Like who's everyone like, with the name Nathan or Nathan right, Nathaniel? Well I figured that out, Nathan. I can mobilize like five hundred Nathans with one email. So you watch it there, man. What am I This
1: gonna, is how we're gonna solve design.
2: <laughs> what? So I'm gonna get audited? <laughs> They're gonna show up in your front door someday and no, we're gonna leave it for more important
0: things. There is nothing less scary than an army of Nathans.
1: Nathan means gift.
0: Except maybe an army of Brendans, but they probably have Roofies.
2: <laughs> What's the worst army? Chad? Ugh God. Uh, army of Chad. Army of Brenda Army of Brenda. <laughs> hey, I have some really good friends named Brenda that are sure. wonderful. We're out. Okay, bye. Thank you you.
1: so much for listening to another fantastic episode. Was it? Was it? We like to leave with a question and a provocation. Was this worth your time? (laughs) You can let us know on Twitter at VODROCKS, V-O-D underscore R-O-C-K-S. And uh, we look forward to inspiring and... uh, hopefully entertaining you next time. Bye-bye.